So praise the Lord for his kindness, for bringing us here. Whoever thought in all of eternity. I grew up in Zimbabwe. I, I'm from Zimbabwe. I grew up in the rural areas in Zimbabwe. And typically, I should not even have been out of where I grew up because most of the people that grew up where I grew up are still there. I saw them when I went back in 2008. So for me to have traversed the world and be here, and here in Ohio, not in Pennsylvania, not in Texas, not in Michigan, and for you to be here at this point in time in your life, whether it's just for this day, is by God's doing. So take it as a special day in that regard. So praise the Lord. I pray that you have, I'll say a lot of things, but I hope that you have one message for you. So with that, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come before be your throne again this morning. Lord, we worship you and to honor you and to honor your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, whom you have testified of in the scriptures, whom you have testified of by your prophets, by your Holy Spirit, by the works that he performed. And now we come also as witnesses of him, as witnesses to those who do not know him, that they may know him as the only way of life, the only way that they can be accepted by a holy and righteous God. Our Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your kindness and we honor you. Give your people understanding this morning. Lord, I pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been going through the book of John. We are still teaching the book of John. And this is sermon number 39 in the book of John, and we are just in John 5. And it is my hope, if the Lord wills, to be teaching through the book of John, maybe for another year and a half. And then, most likely, the book of Romans after that, or the book to the Hebrews. But for now, we are in the book of John, and we are in John 5. Verse 40. And this is a verse that just has way too much teaching to it that a lot of people will just read past it and not understand what it is that Jesus was talking about. Because Jesus in this chapter has been talking to the Jews after he had healed the sick man on the Sabbath. And the Jews were not amused by that. They thought Jesus was breaking the Sabbath and they were mad at him for healing a man on the Sabbath. And also were mad at the man for being healed on the Sabbath. So Jesus takes this occasion and opportunity to teach them about himself and the work that God was doing through him. And now we come to John 5.40. And in the previous verse, John 5.39, this is what Jesus has said to the Jews. He said, well, you look to the scriptures, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify of me. So the Jews thought that they had eternal life by virtue that they had the revelation of God in the scriptures. And Jesus comes and says, no, 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 no. If you are looking at the scriptures and all you are getting is how to live your lives 
and you never come to see that they are testifying of my person and my work, then you have read them in vain. And so he's going to make a statement today and say, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Now, for us to really understand that, we have to give quite some background on how we have to approach reading the Bible. When we are reading the Bible, a lot of people have the tendency to read one part that they agree with and then run with it all over the Bible and use it as their interpretive grid for everything else. So the danger of that is people end up denying truths that are contrary to the things that they want to hear, to the things that they want to believe about God. The Bible is a book that contradicts and confounds everything that is called human wisdom. The Bible is a book that contradicts and confounds everything that is called human wisdom. And because of that, when we have to be on the same side as God who knows all things, we have to be prepared to unlearn so that we may learn. We have to be prepared to unlearn the traditions of men, of which there are many. And if you remember the Lord Jesus Christ, as he was talking to the Jews, he would say to them, you make the word of God of none effect by your traditions. So they were steeped in the traditions, and we easily can also get caught up in the traditions of our churches, of our denominations, and not according to the knowledge of the scriptures. So this is what I am going to tell you. The God of the Bible can only be understood properly by what he says about himself and what he says about you and all humankind. If we have to properly understand who man is, we have to understand it from what God says about man, not what man says about themselves. The God of the Bible says he is the sovereign Lord of all things and that he created all things by his power and by his will that all things may glorify him. And to that a lot of people would say, so if you're saying God is sovereign over all things, what about the evil? Is he the author of the evil? They are trying to trip you. They are trying to trip you so that you may not talk about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible doesn't really apologize for anything that has happened in the universe. He says, I have created all things by my power and everything that has happened in the universe is all working to my purpose. And the purpose of that is the glorification of Jesus Christ. So if you go and read in Colossians, you're going to hear that Jesus is the one who created all things, the visible and the invisible the angels, both the holy angels and the fallen angels, he says he created all of those for his own purpose. So these are things that belong to God and we don't have much understanding as to how God gets glorified in them. But what we know for sure is he is the one who created them. 
and he knows what they're up to and he uses them for his own glory. And some will say, or the Bible says God is love. So we cannot believe in a God who sends anybody to hell. Yes, God is love. But the scriptures are also clear that the same God of love is the one who sends men to hell. So what are we to do with those things? We have to put all that testimony together so that we have a proper understanding of what it is that we are supposed to understand about God. Because God is all these things. He is sovereign. He is love. He is holy. He is righteous. So all these things have to come to one point. We have to understand how those relate to our standing before him. And as sinners, we have to know this testimony that Apostle Paul had and actually quoted from Isaiah, but it's in Romans 11, 34 to 36. This is what he says. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Apostle Paul is saying, don't quarrel with God. Everything is from him. Who has known his mind? No one can know the mind of God. So even when we are faced with difficult things, our only hope is to trust in him who understands all things. He is working his purpose. He is working his will. And nothing will fail. For those who are in Christ, the scriptures are clear to tell us that all things work out for good. All things, good or bad things, he said all things. Whatever situation you have, if you belong to Christ, all things work out for good. For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So what is that to do with what Jesus has said? You are unwilling to come to me so that you have life. You are unwilling to come to me so that you have life. This has everything to do with the glory of God and Jesus Christ. There are a lot of theological layers and understanding that we have to unpack if we are to understand why men are unwilling to come to Christ and why God set up things this way. Because one of the things that people have is that they think they believe in Christ because of their own intelligence. They think they were the more reasonable people. They were the smart people who were able to make a determination to come to Christ and not God himself. From what we are going to learn today, it is not by accident that men are unwilling to come to Christ. Men are unwilling to come to Christ because God designed that men will be unwilling to come to Christ so that the only reason why you would come to Christ is if he brings you to Christ. And that is what is consistent with a God who is holy and righteous and a God who will not share his glory with any other.
But there's something, if you are reading the book of John, as you are going to find in the next few chapters, you are going to hear Jesus saying similar statements. Statements that seem to contradict that statement. For instance, in John 6, verse 44, and John 6, 65, this is what Jesus says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And in John 6, 65, he would say, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. And yet Jesus has said you are unwilling to come. You are unwilling to come. And yet by the same breath. He says no one can come to me. What are you talking about Jesus? These statements seem to be contradictory to each other. The first statement is a statement on the side of man who are unwilling to come to Jesus. Men by nature are unwilling to come to Jesus. But then the second set of statements are saying, no man can come to Jesus unless God draws them. What is Jesus saying? Is Jesus being schizophrenic? What are we to make of these statements in the overall context of the teaching of the Bible? Which side shall give us more light on what is really happening? We know that Jesus is always dogmatic. If there's anything that you learn from Jesus, is Jesus is a very dogmatic person about what he says. He doesn't leave you much room. You have to deal with him or you're in serious trouble. If his claims about himself, when he makes the claim that he is the only way. That's a very dogmatic statement. He is saying there's no other way that life can be had outside himself. And if Jesus is right, then everybody else is wrong. It doesn't matter whether there are billions of people. And Jesus doesn't care. So Jesus always assesses the sovereignty of God in his statements especially the statements of salvation. He asserts the sovereignty, that is the power and right of God to do whatever he wants to do without having to give an account to anybody. So he says, no one can come to him unless God the Father has granted him, granted the person the permission and also, the father has to draw the person. So you need permission from the father to come to Christ. You just don't get up and say, I am going to God. God has to give you permission. Not only that, he also has to draw you. And that's beautiful. We are going to expand on those things and just connect this thing so that you have a proper understanding of what it is that Jesus is saying. God has to grant you permission 
to be granted permission is to be granted the legal right to do something or to go somewhere. If I wasn't in this place and I had the keys and I met you somewhere at the mall and I gave you the keys to this house to come and get something from this house, guess what I've just done? I've granted you the permission. I've granted you the legal right to go in so that if there was any cop who was patrolling the area and if they saw you trying to get in, you're not going to be charged with breaking and entering. You have the legal right. And Jesus is saying, you can't come to God unless God grants you the legal right to come to Jesus. So God has to grant you that you come to Christ because you are unwilling. Because you are unwilling, he also has to draw you. He has to draw you. He has to drag you like a net full of fish. The Greek word that is translated drag there is the same one used when fishermen draw or drag fish out of water. The fish are in the net or they are on the hook and they are kicking and screaming and resisting to come out of the water. And that is the picture of how God brings you to himself. This is the picture of how God brings you out of the world, out of the water of the world to himself. You are not willing by yourself. He has to put you in the net on the hook, and then he pulls, he drags you. Now, that gives us some understanding because if you're a Christian, even before you became a Christian, you had a lot of things that were happening to you, difficult times, moments of life. And most people thought, well, these things are just happening because it's just I have a bad boss or I have these things happening. No. It's God who's doing that. He is pulling you to himself. He is dragging you to himself. That you may not have any confidence in the things that you are holding on to because whatever you put confidence in is your source of salvation. And God says, no, there's no salvation in any other name but the name of Jesus. Money does not give you salvation. Marriage does not give you salvation. There's nothing that gives you hope and salvation. So no one can come to Jesus unless the Father grants it. And not only that, unless the Father drags them. The Father has to drag you to Christ. And the Holy Spirit is very clear to use this language of no one. That is a universal negative. No one is saying absolutely nobody has the ability or power or desire in themselves to come to Jesus unless God the Father has granted it to them and pulls them to himself. So what that is saying is God the Father is very instrumental in your salvation. God the Father is very instrumental in your testimony of Jesus. If God the Father does not grant it to you, 
you cannot come to Jesus. So what about the statement by Jesus that the Jews would not come to him so that they would have life? In the language of Apostle John, when he says coming to Jesus, he is saying the Jews did not receive Jesus. They did not believe in him. They did not believe in Jesus. They could not come to Jesus. As we have been told already in John 1.11, where John said, he came to his own, that is Jesus. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And why did his own not receive him? The answer is supplied again in John 1.5, where John records for us and says about Christ, and the light that is Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus, the light that cannot be taken away, th that light actually is false, where we get our scientific term phosphorescence. It's a light that cannot be extinguished, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It's not saying the darkness did not understand it, the Greek word translated as comprehend is a military term that means to overtake an enemy as to put them down. So Jesus, as the light, came to a place of darkness and those who were in darkness saw Jesus as an enemy and they tried to put him down. But he is force. He is light that cannot be put out. That's what that is saying. So the Jews did not receive Christ because also in John 3.19, because man loved darkness rather than light. Man loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So we have a number of theological factors that we have to put into consideration when we are reading and studying the word of God. If we don't do that, we end up in serious trouble and we may actually end up formulating a lie and believing a lie. And when you are reading the book of John, remember what John is doing. We are in John chapter 5. But John is an excellent thesis writer. John is an excellent thesis writer, and that what he has done is he has given us a glorious introduction in John chapter 1. He has told us about the person of Christ as the Word of God, as God. He has told us that this Word became flesh, and he has told us that this Word who came, came to a world that was full of darkness. So now, going forward from John chapter 1, John is applying those things. He is giving meat. He is expanding on those things. So the darkness that Christ came to is what we are dealing with now. The darkness that man is in is what causes man to be unwilling to come to Christ. That is the point. So, unless... Christ comes to those who are in darkness. No one is coming to him. And this has been said 
in different ways, right from John chapter 2. Jesus has been teaching these themes. There's basically a repetition of the themes. Everything that you need to know in the book of John is in John chapter 1. All this other material is just giving you enough material for you to understand the themes. The themes, is they are being expanded. So Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus in John 3 and say, unless you are born again, you will no way see or receive the kingdom of God. How come Jesus, unless Nicodemus is born again, he will no way see the kingdom of God? Why does Nicodemus need to be born again? Nicodemus is a Jew. He is a powerful Jew. He is an extremely wealthy man, very, very educated, because he's a ruler of the synagogue. He is a Pharisee. So he has all these things going on for him. He has a Greek name, Nicodemus. And that means he was coming from a family that was well-to-do and highly educated. So this is a man that if you're looking at him, he has everything going on for him. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, there's no way that you're going to be saved unless you're born again. You have to be born again. And guess what? This is not in your power. This is the work of God. You have to be born again from above, not from below. Because Nicodemus, if you are left yourself, you belong to the below, to the below of darkness, sin and death. So you need a new birth from one who is from above. And I am the one who is from above. So that statement by Jesus is connected to what we are teaching because if men are unwilling to come to Christ, we have to know how they are going to be made willing. Because left yourself, you are stubborn. You will never come to Christ. Coming to Christ is the last thing on the minds of all men born of a woman. What do the scriptures say about the reason why men are unwilling to come to Jesus. Many Christians, many professing Christians, do not know or understand how they actually came to Jesus. By this I mean they do not understand what the Bible teaches about how and what happens before one can come to the point of having a willingness, a desire, and a taste for Jesus. Many people think that coming to Jesus is something that is within the reach of human will and decision-making. At the same level of human will as buying groceries or buying a car. They think and believe that it is something that is easy to do and that all natural men have this ability in themselves. So because people think that, you hear a lot of people, when we talk about salvation, they emphasize their will. And they say, but God gave us a free will to choose him or not to choose him. No, that's not what is happening. The Bible does not teach that. Ultimately, it's you who have to make that decision. 
But how do you get to the point that you make that decision? There's much more that happens behind the scenes before you get cheese and milk at the store. You don't get cheese and milk at the store. Milk does not come from the store. Milk and cheese come from cows. Cows that have had cows. And then they get milked. And the milk has to be pasteurized. And then it has to be packaged. And then it has to be transported. Then you can get it. My point is this. The thinking and knowledge of many Christians about salvation is incorrect. It is not correct because it dishonors the work of God that he has done in his own son. Because the work of salvation is the work of Jesus alone. It is the work of God alone for the glory of Jesus and for the glory of his son. And because people minimize how they came to Christ, when they get together, they talk about themselves as the reason why they are saved and not about Christ as the reason why they have a right standing with God. So what happens now is having a shallow understanding of how one gets saved minimizes the grace of God that actually saved you because the grace of God is a very particular grace. It's a very personal grace. God has to come to you individually. God does not save people in a group. He has to come to you individually and call out your name individually and say, Irene, come forth. It's a very personal call. And imagine this. This is the God of eternity who has all the angels, all the denizens of heaven around him who are giving him worship and praising him. And he has one split second to think of you and say, Irene, come. That's how special it is. But if you minimize it to your own silly decision, you don't see the glory of God in how much he actually loves you. That is, all this is happening as he is making sure that the stars and the planets don't collide into each other. He's also calling his people to himself. Now that's glory. That's personal. That is supposed to give you chills. It's supposed to give you goosebumps. That this God, when he loves, he loves like nobody. So Jesus is not an ordinary person. Jesus has done some extraordinary work. And it's a very, very personal work. And whatever Jesus did, he did it with your name on his heart. If you still remember, or if you know anything about the high priest of Israel, when they entered into the tabernacle to make the offerings, they had to have this type of garments that had the names of the tribes of Israel written on them. And these were a type of Christ. And these were saying, when Jesus went on the cross as our high priest, was making that sacrifice for our sins, he had our names with him. Is that personal? So we can't come and say, start talking about ourselves. If we have to know anything about ourselves, we have to know about him. 
We have to know about him. So Jesus is not a politician. Jesus is not a politician who is running for political office and is just desperate for votes and campaign funds for his bid. No, he's not. To understand the grace of God in Christ is supposed to give you security because you're going to get sick. You're going to go to the doctor just one of these days and the doctor is going to say, guess what? Things are not looking good. You're going to be faced with death. Maybe not today. Maybe not this year. But some time is coming. Where is your hope? Because at some point, you're going to be by yourself. Those who are going to be in your room in the hospital won't be with you when you actually die. They're just there physically, but they're not going with you. You need to have much stronger hope. And that's going to come from you knowing the knowledge of the truth. And remember, you are spirit. And your spirit only is using this body as housing, as temporary housing to enable you to function in this environment. Your brain is going to give way. Your body is going to give way. Your heart is going to give way. But your spirit lives. And it retains all this knowledge because you do not need a brain to think. Because when you die, you still know that you're Irene. Because you don't need your brain. Your brain is only for the purpose of the way that your body has been prepared to function in this place. It's glorious. Men are unwilling to come to Jesus because they are sinners. After the fall of Adam, all men born after Adam are born not as sweet, innocent, obedient, and God-loving people. They are born as God-hating, depraved sinners whose minds and hearts are darkened, who are willing to kill God at any instant if they could lay their hands on him as they did on Mount Calvary. The only time that men actually had access to touch God, guess what they did with him? They killed him. That's the testimony of all men. And you and I, if we were there, we would not have done any different. We would be one of the people in front, throwing stones at Jesus, or spitting at Jesus, or saying all kinds of absurd things about Jesus. Because we're sinners, and because we are born this way, no man has ability in themselves to turn themselves around and look to God. Yes, all men have the ability to go to the shopping mall and to go to the beach. Men have ability to participate in the presidential elections. But the elections of heaven are beyond our ability. They are beyond our view mirrors or our binoculars or telescopes. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said this, If God did not choose me before I was born, he never would have chosen me afterwards. This is his point. 
if God did not choose you before you were born, after you were born, you were just a depraved sinner. And there was nothing good in you that would cause God to come and say, okay, I have to choose Chi-Chi. I have to serve him. So God has to choose you before you're even born. And that's exactly what happened. God chose us in Christ. And no creature and no angel, no devil, or you were there to decide for God. God made this election of his people before he created anything. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That is Ephesians chapter 1. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. God chose you in Christ not for your goodness, but for his good pleasure. It's God's good pleasure to have you in heaven. It pleased God to have you to be one of those who shall experience the grace and love of God in Jesus Christ. Praise God. Because he was not under obligation to save you. God is never obligated to his creatures. But whatever he does, he does it for his glory and his good pleasure. The Bible recognizes the fallen condition of all men and describes it in various ways. Here's Ephesians 2.1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We needed to be made spiritually alive, not physically alive. People mistaken physical life with spiritual life. God says you were dead in trespasses and sins. Death here is used to communicate by God the Holy Spirit of your inability, your importance, and helplessness to do anything that is beneficial spiritually. As a dead person is helpless to awaken themselves and tie their shoes. You can go and tell a dead person to tie their shoes and you'll be saying that forever and ever. And God says spiritually, that's what you are. Unless he makes you alive. Do you see the distinction? And he made us alive in Christ. So it's Jesus who gave us life. That we may come to our consciousness to see, oh wow, I have to button my jacket. And to give you the ability to even move your hands and to tie your shoes. So the picture of Lazarus in the tomb is a picture of our spiritual state. Lazarus was dead for almost four days. And it did not matter where Lazarus was. If they didn't bury him or they buried him, made no difference. The truth of the matter was Lazarus was a dead man until Jesus came. And when Jesus came, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. 
And this was at a place where they buried dead people, a cemetery. The command was very specific. Jesus is God. He is the word of God. He is the word of God that when God said, let there be light, that's Jesus who was saying. So with Jesus as God, his words are things. Whatever he says happens. The man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. No, Jesus, it's withered. It doesn't stretch. Stretch out your hand. What is that saying? At the tomb, there were a lot of dead people. And if Jesus does not give a specific command, all the dead people rise. Jesus has to give a very specific command and say, Lazarus, rise. And that's how spiritually you were given life. He had to come and give you a very specific command. It's very personal. He didn't call everybody. But hear this from Micah the prophet about the condition of man. Because if we don't understand the condition of man, then we don't understand who Jesus is and we don't appreciate what God has done through him and what God is doing by his Holy Spirit. Micah 7, 2-4. The godly has perished from the earth, and there's no one upright among mankind. There's no one. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. Listen to this. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them a thorn hedge. And that is a good summary of what has become of all men spiritually because of sin. And it is because of this that none is willing to come to Christ that they may have life. It is for this reason why men resist the Holy Spirit. And to resist the Holy Spirit does not mean that sinners have power to overpower the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is the dunamai, the Greek word dunamai. He is the power. And you can hear the English word dynamite. That was transliterated from dunamai. So the Holy Spirit is the dunamai. He is the power of God. He is not resistible in the way of being overpowered by man. It is just saying men don't really pay attention to what the Holy Spirit says. You say one thing, they're like, I don't care. That's basically how they are resisting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God and he is the omnipotent, the almighty God. And there's no one who has power to resist him. Whatever he speaks, that happens. Lazarus come forth. That could easily have been the Holy Spirit. Could easily have been the Father. Could easily have been Jesus. No one can resist God in that respect. If the almighty God speaks, you have to come to your 
senses. Now, when we teach, we don't teach for just one Sunday. We teach this so that if the Lord wills, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, you can come to the same sermon and hear this teaching. So we don't just give you enough for the day. We give you enough for a long time. Whilst I have opportunity, whilst it's too cold today, because I don't even have the guarantee that I'll be preaching next Sunday either. In Acts 7, 51, we have Stephen preaching to the Jews. And we know Stephen makes a statement there that the Jews always resist the Holy Spirit. And a lot of men go to that verse so as to show up their arguments for will and men worship and say, well, men always resist the Holy Spirit, but they are the ones who have the sense better than all men to not resist the Holy Spirit. That's a lie. But listen to what Stephen actually said in Acts 7, 51. This is what he says. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. The reason why the Jews resisted the Holy Spirit was because they were stubborn. But why were they stubborn? Because their hearts and ears were uncircumcised, which means their hearts were stony hearts. They were unreceptive and impervious to the truth. And the hearts of all men are born uncircumcised. They are born as stony and stubborn hearts. And the un unbeliever cannot circumcise themselves. No one ever circumcised themselves in Israel and even now. So God was very purposeful in the use of this language of circumcision to suggest that the problem that men have is an internal problem, is a problem that is beyond the reach of their hands and their tools. That is beyond the ability of men to do. The problem of the unwillingness of men to come to Christ is not an intellectual problem, nor is it a biological problem. Rather, it is a problem of the heart. It is a problem of the mind. Those very places that men cannot reach, cannot reach and change. You can go to a dermatologist and they can do some things to you and make you look beautiful but they can never do that to your heart god has to make your heart beautiful god only can reach your heart and change it in a way that makes it obedient man can send rockets into deep space but they can't send the word of god into their own hearts unless god does it now now that we know what the problem with man is, let's hear God's promise and solution to this problem. Because the problem is men are unwilling. If you're talking about sin, the summary of sin is this. It makes you unwilling. It just makes you unwilling to obey. That's it. But hear God's 
solution. Ezekiel 11, 19-20. Ezekiel 11, 19-20. God says, I'll give them one heart and I'll put a new spirit within them, a spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and they shall be my people and I'll be their God. This is all circumcision language. And the believer is one who has had a circumcision, but which was not done by human hands, as Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2.11. He says, in him, that is in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So our circumcision was in the removal of our sin through the body of Christ, his crucifixion on the cross. But there's another teaching also that men use to say we naturally have the ability to come to God by ourselves. They say, well, men are just stubborn and they resist God, but if they can speak to the best person within them, if they just would sit down and think carefully, they should be able to come back to Christ. This is a problem. People approach salvation as if God actually really needs men in heaven. God is the only being who does not need anything. God is the only being who does not need anything. God is never in need of anything. For him to be in need of anything is to make him a creature. So, God does not give up on his people, the ones that he determined to choose. God does not sit in a corner somewhere in heaven like an abandoned child with a box of Kleenex tissues, drying his eternal tears because he won't force himself on anyone because he just wants people to come and love him freely. That is the picture of God that people have. And it's a false picture of God. But it's a picture that is agreeable with the God of man's imagination. So man love to go to Luke 13, 34 and say, Look, we told you that God is desperate for men to come to him. God wants men to come to him. He wants them to worship him. If you have listened to any of my sermons, you probably heard one of my sermons that I talked about the funeral of Whitney Houston when she died. One of the preachers came and said, Oh, heaven is not going to be the same. God has just been waiting for Whitney to come. Heaven is not going to be the same because Whitney Houston is singing in heaven. <laughs> Lord, help us. That's foolishness. But listen to the verse that people use. 
Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. How often I wanted to gather children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You see, there's also the unwillingness of man. Men go to this verse and say, look, we told you, God so desperately wants to gather men, but men, oh, men don't want to come to God. No. We have to get more understanding, because if we don't, we are going to fall into that trap. Men want a vulnerable God. They want a God that they can control and manipulate. And that is why people love the Jesus in the manger, because if Jesus in the manger, they continue to see him as a baby. And as a baby, they continue to see him as very vulnerable child who is at their mercy. If they don't bring a sippy cup with milk, oh, Jesus is going to die. Yes, God shows his mercy. Yes, God calls sinners to himself. Yes, God calls sinners to repent. But that is not what people are drawing from it to say salvation now depends on sinners gathering their own power and making themselves willing and coming to Christ. The point of that statement is that men are unwilling. That's the point. Men are unwilling to come to Christ and will remain unwilling Unless what happens? Unless the Father grants it to them. Unless the Father draws them and brings them to Christ. It won't happen unless Jesus draws them and gives them life. And it will not happen unless the Holy Spirit draws them to Christ. This is a text that is telling us of human depravity as shown by the killing of the prophets. And their unwillingness to repent. And guess what? That is not by accident. Men are unwilling to come to Christ because if they come by themselves, by their own power, it would glorify and exalt them. It would exalt their power of choice. And God will not have any of that in salvation. And this is part of the equation that is largely ignored when we talk about men's unwillingness to come to Christ. Listen to Romans 11.32. For God has committed all men, God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. God has committed all men to sin. You never hear this. But that's not the only point. Listen to Romans 8.20. For the creation, that is everything, was subjected to futility, to vanity, not willingly. Creation was subjected to vanity of sin and corruption was subjected. It did not subject itself. Was subjected by God. Not willingly. But because of him 
who subjected it? It was God who did it. So it is this sub being subjected to vanity because of sin and corruption that has man unwilling to come to God. And God actually purposed to do that. You're going to hear it. I'm going to connect it. It's there in the text. Listen. All creation was subjected to the vanity of sin by God's will. A lot of people say, oh, the devil. The devil is just an instrument. The devil is an instrument in God's works. Listen to this. God has imprisoned all men to sin. And this by his decree that man would not be able to come to him by themselves. What that means is man could not be able to have eternal life by their own doing. Because eternal life is only an attribute of one who is God. So if you are ever going to possess it, you have to understand that naturally by yourself you don't have it. So you have to be put in a situation where you realize that you need it. And sin is the only way that you can come to the realization that you are in trouble and you really need Jesus. Listen to this. He committed all to disobedience that he might demonstrate his mercy and grace to the sinner and not the sinner to demonstrate their power of choice. So the issue is whose power is on display? Is it your power of choice or the power of God's grace? Is the power of God's grace. So God has put you in a weak position. Listen to this. The sinner can only come to God in a very weak position. In everything. And that is why God planned salvation this way. Listen to Romans 5, 6. For when we were still without strength, for when we were still helpless, helpless of what? Because of sin. In due time, Christ died for the good people. No. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. And this good news because Christ only died for the ungodly. And the only qualification you need for salvation is one. You have to be the ungodly. If you are not ungodly, Christ did not die for you. Christ only paid for the sins of the ungodly. And if you are chief among them, guess what? That's what Christ came and did. Salvation was not an afterthought of God. He purposed to bring salvation. He purposed to bring it about from eternity. Because this is the only way that exalts his glory the very most in the eyes of all those who are being saved, those who are disobedient, those who are unrighteous, but who are made righteous and accepted only in the righteousness and obedience of Christ so that Christ may be all and in all. That Christ may be all and in all. The reason why God has done this is so that Christ may be exalted. God loves Jesus so much that he is willing to bring all creation to vanity that in the salvation of creation, in the salvation of creation, 
Christ may be exalted. If you read Romans 8, it connects it. All creation is awaiting for the revelation of the sons of God. God condemned the whole creation to corruption. And the restoration of all creation is only going to happen in the salvation of God's people. That is God's plan. This is what is happening. This is not just for you to come and say, oh, I'm making a choice for Christ and I'm going to heaven. There's way much more that is happening behind the scenes. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1 to 26. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. This is very important. You have to understand this. For consider your calling. God is saying, consider yourself and where you are. Consider. Take a moment and think about your own circumstances. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Consider your calling. Consider your salvation in Christ Jesus. Consider your faith in Christ Jesus. And look around those who profess Christ. And he says, there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. But God has chosen. It's God who's making the choosing. The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Now you're understanding why everything is happening this way. God has chosen all these things are all not looking good in the eyes of men. But God says, that's how I do things. That no man may boast before me. But by his doing, listen to this. But by his doing, the doing of God, you are in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus, not by your choice, not by your will, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us what? Wisdom from God, because you have no wisdom. You need God to give you wisdom through Christ. And righteousness, you have no righteousness. You need the righteousness of Christ. And sanctification, you have no holiness. You need the holiness of Christ. And redemption, you need glorification. You need to have that righteous body where both your mind and your body are at harmony. There is no discord between your mind and your whole body. They are in harmony in righteousness. And God says, so that just as it is written, let him who boss boss in the Lord. That's the purpose of salvation. That you may only boast in Jesus. Listen to this. So the reason why all men were consigned to disobedience and were made unwilling was so that no one would have merit or power in themselves before God. And that's why God says, think clearly about the circumstances of your calling. Consider that when God came for you, there was nothing really going on for you. There was nothing that God would have seen in you that moved him to save you. 
Nothing. He says, of those that he saves, none has anything. Not wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. You're not coming from the house of the queen. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things to shame the things which are strong. And the base things and the despised, the things that are not, so that he may nullify things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Before God, as God looks at you, he looks at you as weak, as base, as despised. You are so nothing in the eyes of God that he says, you are things that are not. You have to understand what that is saying. The base things are things that are vain things. Okay. They are base things. They have no value. You can see the glitter, but it's base. It's cheap. But then God says there's another level. If you actually look at it, I've taught this before somewhere. Just this verse, as this, chapter, this chapter as my sermon. God is giving you a scale. It's actually a scale if you look at it. And the scale is not a good scale. It's a scale in the negative. But it gets worse and worse until he gets to the point that he says the base and the one thing that is below the base is something that is not. If there's something that is base, you can actually, for a moment, you can look at it like, oh, did you see that? And then when you come close to it, you realize, oh, no, it wasn't as good as you thought. That's the base. The things that are not are things that you don't even pay attention to. They are so useless you don't even consider them. And God says, that's where you are. So there's no reason why I chose you other than that I wanted to display my glory in serving someone who is base and who is nothing. Listen to this. If we are in Christ, if we have a confession of Christ, it's only because he chose us. For Jesus said, you do not choose me, but I chose you. You were the base, the ordinary, the despised, not the outstanding in anything, spiritually or otherwise. The scriptures say, if you are in Christ, it is not because of you exercising your free will. Your free will, your will is not free to come to Christ because it's bound by sin. You are dead. If you are dead, you are bound. So spiritually, you are dead. So your will is not free in regards to salvation. It's free, though, with respect to sin. When it comes to sin, oh, wow, you don't even need to go to school for that. You don't need anybody to teach you how to sin. You do that naturally. But if you come to Christ... This is what has happened behind the scenes. We have to give enough material because at some point you may have to explain these things to other people. 
And then one of the most frustrating things when I was, the Lord was teaching me this understanding was I was understanding what it is that the Bible actually taught on these things. But I could never really go to the scriptures that really taught it in a way that would make it clear. So it was a sense of frustration for a long time. And I put a lot of effort to get this. And so you may find yourself in that situation. So what has happened then behind the scenes that has made you to come to Christ? We are close to finishing. I promise we'll finish today. Not tomorrow. <laughs> Psalm 110, 3. Your people shall be made willing in the day of your power. Not your power. Thy people shall be made willing. They shall be made willing. <laughs> so you are coming to Christ because God has made you willing. Why has he made you willing? Because he loves you. <laughs> because he chose you in Christ. He won't lose you. So he makes you willing. He gives you the spiritual eyes and the ears to hear. That's why Jesus was always saying, let him who has ears to hear, hear. Because there are some who are not given the ability to hear spiritual things. Listen to this. John 1, 12 to 14. But as many as received him, of those who received Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So those who receive Christ, they don't do so because of their family heritage. They don't do so because of their will. They do so only because they were born again by the will of God. It is God who makes them willing. So you were born again from above. And Jesus gave you the living water. That is the Holy Spirit. In time, the Lord granted you the power and the will to repent and come to Christ. So the work of salvation is not just as haphazard as many people think it to be. Because when you read the scriptures, you actually learn that God the Father gave a people to Jesus before the foundation of the world. Like when you read in the book of John, Jesus always says that. Of all those that my Father gave to me, I shall lose nothing. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. You don't believe in me because you are not my sheep. Listen to this. What about faith and repentance? I'm not going to really talk deep about them, but I am bringing them together with this teaching so that you understand how you got those things. Faith is a gift, which means it naturally is not possessed by man. 
Repentance is a gift. God has to give it. Left to ourselves, we have no faith. Left to ourselves, we cannot repent. So he has to come to you and I. And praise the Lord that he actually does come to you and I. Because if he does not, we would 100% of the time choose hell. Would choose 100% of the time to go to hell. But God has accomplished his salvation on Mount Zion. God has accomplished his salvation in Jesus. So we are not to buy the lie that we are in Christ because we are the clever ones. We are the smart ones who figured out what everybody else could not figure out. The scriptures that we just read in 1 Corinthians said, by his doing, we are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, we have faith in Christ. By his doing, we have been granted repentance. So in spite of the manifold witnesses that God has put forward in the witness stand to testify of his son, no one will come. And no one can come unless God brings them to himself. And if you have come, listen to what Jesus says in John 6.45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. And they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, therefore, everyone who has had and learned from the Father comes to me. So this is how you came. You have to have had from the Father. And you have to have learned from the Father. And because you have learned from the Father, you always come to Christ. You have no choice. All those who are taught of God will come to Christ without exception. What that means is God does not bestow salvation on all people. And that is so against the way or sense of fairness. But this is not my philosophy. This is not my ideas. That's what God teaches. God did not make salvation possible and then left the final determination to the decision of individual men. No, he did not do that. Because if Jesus made salvation possible and did not save anyone, guess what? No one still comes to him. He would have died for nothing. But Jesus paid for all the sins of his people Completely. And these people are the ones who are taught by the Father to come to him. And these are the ones who are made willing to come to Christ that they may have eternal life. And these are the ones who have been born again by the will of God. And these are the ones who received the water from Jesus' well, not Jacob's well. And these are the ones who receive Jesus. God cannot leave you anything that is required for salvation to be performed or completed by you. Even if God were to leave you brushing your teeth, just brushing your teeth as a condition of completing salvation, you will not make it. Because you have to brush your teeth very well 
I mean, like, brush them very well. Every day. At the same time. And leave no trace of any food particle or any virus. You won't make it. Just one. Just one thing. You name it, whatever it, you think it is, waking up at the same time, even with an alarm. If you miss one point, you're gone. God did not leave you anything for salvation to be completed by you. Do not mistake the duty of salvation for you completing the terms of the covenant of salvation, the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is a covenant whose terms were all fulfilled by Jesus. And that covenant was formed by Jesus and the Father and was completely and perfectly fulfilled by the Son in his life, death, and resurrection. So when we are coming to Christ, we are not completing salvation. Rather, we are receiving salvation. So salvation is not a potluck. You do not bring your own dish. You do not bring your own dish to God's supper. Your food is Jesus, the bread from heaven. Faith is not your own, as I said. Repentance is not your own, as I said. The only thing that we bring to the table of the Lord is our sin. That's all we bring. And God brings everything else and God brings everything else okay so what am I saying I'm saying it is impossible for you to come to Christ unless he makes you winning we may learn something from the confession of the leper in Mark 140 the leper said to Jesus Lord if you are willing, you can make me clean. You are unwilling. But the leper recognizes that if the Lord is unwilling, you also shall remain unwilling. So pray then to the Lord and say, Lord, if you are willing, make me willing. Lord, if you are willing, Make me clean and I'll come. Lord, tend me and I'll tend. Lord, save me or else I perish. And that is a prayer that God answers. That is a prayer that God hears. And if you come to that by yourself, then guess what? God has already made you willing. If you come to pray like that, in your heart by yourself, and you feel the burden, God has already made you willing. And I pray this morning that God will make you all willing. All willing to come to him that you may have life. And if you are in Christ already, and you believe in him, and you see him, and you hear him, and understand what he is saying, it is because he has already made you willing. He has given you the ears to hear. He has chosen you and redeemed you and given you his spirit. 
But those who are not of Christ are unwilling to come. Those who are not of Christ are unwilling to come to him that they may have life. And yet God is going to judge them for being unwilling to come. That is sovereignty. And that is the God of the Bible. And praise him and worship him. He has been kind to us. Let's go before him in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy throne this morning. We praise you, Lord. We thank you that you have made your people willing by your power, by granting them the permission to come to you that they may have the life of Christ, the life that you have given by your Holy Spirit. Our Lord, I pray and thank you that you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and that you had to come to us because if we had to come to you by ourselves, by our doing, by our own will, Lord, we would not come. We would be waiting to get better and we would never come at all. And Lord, we praise you for your grace, for your condescension to come and do those things for us that we couldn't do for ourselves to give us a new birth, to give us the living water, that we may also have the witness and testimony of Christ. Our Lord, we honor you and we praise you for your goodness. Now I pray, Lord, for our visitors this morning. You know where they are. You know their troubles. You know their needs, their longings. Lord, we pray that you meet them and provide for them but even more, Lord, I pray that you would cause them to be willing. Because this earth as we see it is dying. Even the heathens know that. And we of the Spirit know that it's perishing. And we pray, Lord, that you give them this testimony. That they will take it home and think about it and come to you and have life. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.